regulation and all the rest. You guys have a good weekend? No? How come? Uh huh. It was because it was written. Yeah. So we just sat, Meg and I, you know, Meg. We were yeah. sitting at our hotel doing homework the whole time. It was just a nice change of scenery. Wow. Uh, did you get to the arch? So we drove into like the heart of St. Louis, but it was so rainy and foggy, you couldn't see the arch. You couldn't see the arch? No. <laughs> That's terrible. It was the most miserable. And then, like, we had to pull the tarp for the other team to be all in class. Uh-huh. Wait, you had to what? You had to pull the tarp for them? We had to pull Washington University's tarp. Because they were all in class. And I was like, wow, we essentially you out here to pull to, another to help, to help their field. Wow. What class did you miss? This one. And macro oh, that's right. Theory. I haven't been to macroeconomic theory in two weeks. <laughs> it's rough. God. All right, then. Sports. So, really, this is all about the game, right? And it's about playing, and therefore it's about, like, <laughs> roulette would be an example of that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, you're not buying that segue? Like, Brandeis' gambling 25 grand to send a softball team. So, hoping it's not going to rain? No, I w- that's not how I would put it. I would say it's just about... Um, how the thrill of the game gets into your blood, and then you do things that end in tears. And then you sweat, but it ends in tears. So it goes like from blood to sweat to tears. That's a good trio. Blood, sweat, and tears. Someone should start a rock band. Someone should defend the, the British Isles using, using something like that. All right. You've never heard of blood, sweat, and tears? I've heard of the phrase. Okay, it's not a real phrase. The real phrase is blood, sweat, toil, and tears. Um, but it became, it's the name of, I guess um, people, I think one person or maybe two people in English 11 knew about them. Um, they still exist. They're a rock band. Um, they're a very geriatric rock band now. Um, but they were a rock band from the 60s and, uh, and, and very famous for a while. They had a lot of uh, number one hits. Um, so, okay, now you don't, no one's heard of Blood, Sweat, and Tears? How very sad. Okay, Joseph, you're here. Um, Abigail, um, Noah, uh, Nicole, no. Connie, um, Emma, yes. Ian, no. He's heard of Blood, Sweat, and Tears. That's what it is. I'm, um, Jimmy, no. Aria, no. Prue, yes. Darhan, yes. Andrea, yes. Um, Owner, yes. Gabby, yes. Lynn Fay, no. Um, I think he's coming to my office hours today, though. That'll be interesting. And, <laughs> and Angela. Um, all right, do we have a quorum? Two, four, six. Yeah, I guess we do. All right, um, have you guys started uh, um, Colin White, Colson Whitehead yet? Um, are you liking it? Yeah, I like it. Yeah. I still don't fully understand like, the poker. poker, but like... And- you should play with Andrea. Just play kind of low stakes. <laughs> and, um, there's, I'm like uh, pleasantly surprised by how much I do understand it just because of the way he writes, like the examples he gives and the way he writes about it. Yeah. Like, well, he's, he's a fabulous writer, um, and he's, he's really the first modern um, writer in English that we're reading. Like Dostoevsky, the translation is good, but it's still a translation. So do you play Hold'em? Yeah. You do. Okay, so, you, so can you explain it? Excellent. Yeah. So basically... This is for everyone, so you can... You can Colson Whitehead um, explains it too, but it's better to have it live. So basically, you're trying to get the best hand of five, and you get two, and then there's five on the table, and you're trying to combine your two with the best three on the table, and there's like a set order of what the best hands are, Um, but at first you only see three cards, and you're betting on, like, if just those three cards, if you like already have like a full house or something, that's a lot, but if you have like 
two of a kind and you're betting that you can get three of a kind on the second two, which is the river. Um, or Fourth Street. There's a lot of funny names. This was a, this was a Jeopardy category that I just watched. Did you really? What was the Jeopardy category? It was poker facts. And, I was like, oh. and one of them was that there are a lot of funny names in Hold'em? No, it was just poker words. <laughs> okay. Very smart. Um, then, yeah, you're taking a riskier bet, but you can still win. Um, okay, so everyone realize, so how many people don't know about uh, the order of hands in poker? Okay. Boy, you guys have not wasted your youth. This is terrible. I mean, if you're, what are you going to waste the rest of your life? Yeah, like I know them, but I forget them every time I play. And then like people be like, oh, no, you have this. And I'll be like, no. All right. So now that, so everyone gets the rules of roulette, because that's what we're going to talk about more. Um, and, and we talked about this a little bit last week. So the rules of poker are you want to, on the whole, you want to match cards in various ways, in ways that are a little bit like gin rummy. How many people play gin rummy? <laughs> of course you do. Um, Ian, have you heard of Blood, Sweat, and Tears, the band? Yes. Yeah, okay, good. See? Ha. No one else. Oh, never heard you? No, I Oh, they do a great version of Sympathy for the Devil. Okay. Um, they're, they're sort of where rock and, um, and uh, rock, they're kind of founders of rockabilly in a, in a, in a funny kind of way. They're, they're where rock and, and a kind of country sound come together, but more on the rock side of things. Okay, so don't say you learned nothing in this class, because now you know about blood, sweat, and tears. You'll hear them. Just listen to, like, like geriatric, golden geriatric radio, and you will hear it. Okay, um, you want to match cards. The easiest thing you want to match is a pair of the same cards. Um, a pair is will will defeat what's called jack shit. Does it, has anyone heard the phrase jack shit? In terms of the game? No, in terms of anything. Like, I got yeah, jack yeah. shit, or this is jack shit. Um, so, explain jack shit. I think it's two and jack are the worst set of cards to have in your hand. Like, if you have a two and jack, you should basically just fold. I think, actually, jack shit is if you're playing jacks are better to open. Which is, so in standard five-card draw, which no one plays anymore, but which is the game, in standard five-card draw, <coughs> you can't bet unless you get a pair of jacks. So if someone makes a bet, they are actually signaling that they have at least a pair of jacks in their hand. And that means that if you look at your hand and you have nothing that looks like it's going to do better than a pair of jacks, you can, you can discard one, two, or three cards and pick up one, two, or three cards. So you, ha you begin with a five-card hand, you discard some cards, and then you get new cards for the cards you discarded. So if you've, if you've ever heard the term drawing to an inside straight, what that would mean is something like, anyone know what a straight is? Not you. Anyone else? What's a straight? Is that when it's like two, three, four, five? Six. Yeah, Six. you need five cards. <laughs> so, yeah, a straight is when you have, when you have cards in order. And an ace can be either the lowest or the highest card in a straight. So you can have ace, two, three, four, five, or you can have uh, ten, jack, queen, king, ace. And if you draw to a straight, you might have four, you might be dealt five cards. You may have a three, four, five, six, and jack. And so you would then discard the jack in hopes of getting what? Three, four, five, six, and jack, and you want a straight. A seven or a two. So you have a two, roughly speaking, slightly better than two and well, not roughly speaking. You have a slightly better than two and thirteen chance of completing the straight. So um, slightly, you know, let's say a one in six chance of completing the straight. So if you're playing with seven players and a straight will win, usually in a seven, maybe not. But it's, you may not want to go out of that hand. You may stay in on that hand, hoping to get a straight. So would you stay in on that? Uh, if I oh, you don't play draw. Never mind. You don't know the subtleties of draw. Let's play draw sometime. <laughs> um, so, the, so an inside straight is if you have two, three, four, six, and jack. So what do you need to complete that straight? You would need a five. Your chances of getting a five are just barely over one in 13. So an inside straight is when you have to fill in a straight from the inside. And so 
what you'll often hear metaphorically, he drew to an inside straight and he got killed um, in, like, in like detective novels. So don't draw to an inside straight. That's a really important thing to know. You should never draw to an inside straight because you're not going to get it. Rarely will you get it. So, pair of, but Jack's a pair of cards is the lowest winning hand that's not just that you happen to have a high card and no one else has cards as high as you and no one else has anything. So a pair is the lowest winning hand. If you're betting um, in draw poker, if you're betting, if you're the first person to bet, you show that you have jacks. What will often happen is you'll bet, there'll be a round of betting, there'll be a draw, there'll be another round of betting, and then someone will see you and say, what do you have? And you may say, jacks shit. That is, I do have the pair of jacks, which I had to have to bet, and I have nothing else. So it's basically, it's what people knew you had from the start, and you had nothing better than what you had from the start. So... At any rate, there's a hierarchy of hands in poker. On the whole, they go from high probability to low probability. They're actually not perfect that way, but on the whole, they go from the highest to the lowest probability. So a pair is the easiest thing to have. Two pairs is um, the next easiest thing to have. Three of a kind is, I think a straight is actually the next easiest thing to have, and then three of a kind. But a straight beats three of a kind. Um, three of a kind plus a pair is what's called a full house, or if you want to sound cool, you say a boat. And was that a? Yeah. All right. Um, and um, then um, so that beats. Uh, oh, sorry. After a straight comes a flush, which is when all the cards are the same suit. After that comes a full house. After that comes um, four of a kind. And after that comes the hardest thing to get, which is a straight flush. What's a straight flush, anyone, besides Andrea? So what's a straight? It's five in a row of the same suit. Right. And what's a, what's a flush? Same suit. So straight flush is five in a row with the same suit. Uh, so, and then a royal flush, which is also the name of some porta-potties that you can find. They're called royal flushes. Um, are when the... When the straight flush starts with a 10 and ends with an ace. So the highest possible hand in poker without wild cards is 10, jack, queen, king, ace. And if two people get royal flushes, then it'll be, sometimes will be done by suit. So spades is the highest suit. So it'd be 10, jack, queen, king, ace, and spades. Um, with wild cards, you can get five of a kind. If you're playing without wild cards and your opponent gets five of a kind, they've cheated. So... Um, that's another thing to keep in mind. So basically, poker is all about getting the best five-card hand you, you can. Um, and in poker, in almost all cases, you get to put together more than five cards into the best five-card hand you can. So there's a little bit of calculation and a little bit of um, working out what the best thing to do, given the fact that you are going to pick and choose among more than five cards to get the best five-card hand that you can. So in five-card draw, you can see a total of up to eight cards. The problem is you can't see them all at once. You have to, you have to give cards up to get cards. In five-card stud, which is the only game where you don't get to pick and choose, you're simply given five cards, you do get to see some of your opponent's cards. Um, and you bet on the basis of what you know all the cards that you have while knowing some of the cards that your opponent has and knowing how your opponent is betting on the cards that she has. So, but five-card stud is the only game where, you, where you're looking for the best five-card hand out of five cards, pure and simple. Every other game, you get, you get to pick and choose among more cards. So seven-card stud is you get a total of seven cards, but you pick the best five-card hand. And in Hold'em, you have two cards that are yours and five cards that are communal. So, now you, so do you want to keep explaining Hold'em? Okay, so five cards that are communal, you see three cards right away, so you have a five-card hand that you can look at on your first bet, right? You bet 
is, do you bet before the flop? Or it's, do you, um, you have big blind and little blind, which means like it switches. Oh, right. Whoever's, there's like a dealer, a small blind, and a little blind, and that shifts like every turn. And basically, like usually, it depends like where you're playing everything. But the little blind, so there's like a standard bet, which could be like 10. Um, and the little blind would have to bet five, and the big blind would have to bet 10 before they even have any of their cards to make sure that there's just money in the pot. Um, and then every, anyone else who wants to be in has to put in at least 10, and the little blind has to put in five. Yeah. Okay, so there's a sunk cost that little blind and big blind have to put in. Um, often in poker, you'll have the dealer antes. It's a way of making things um, easier and convenient that if you're dealing, you put the ante in to begin with, and the ante changes from, from player to player. So there's money at risk. Um, if you say in the game there's money at risk, you are playing based on what you know you have and sometimes what you know other people might have. In Texas Hold'em, they're communal cards. So you have two cards that you alone know, there are three cards in the middle that everyone can share in, and then the, then there's a fourth card, um, sometimes called Fourth Street, and a fifth card, sometimes called Fifth Street, hence the book Positively Fifth Street, which is another book about gambling. Which um, So that eventually five cards are shown, and you make the best five-card hand that you can out of the five cards that are shown plus the two cards that you have. So that if you see three aces in the middle then the worst hand that anyone has is three aces. That's the absolute worst hand. So unless you have something better than three aces, you probably should not stay in. If you have an ace in your hand, however, then you have four aces, which is pretty good, especially since you know that no one else can have either a flush or a straight, right? If you see three of a kind, you can't have either a flush or a straight. Or no, you could have a flush but not a straight, is that I right? Mean, you could, like, no, yeah, yeah, it would depend what the other what the other two, the cards, other two are. cards are. You could still have a straight. Yeah, because the ace could be a, yeah. And then it could be, they have two and the river is two. Yeah, um, but probably a flush, a flush might win, a straight won't win if you see three aces in the middle, because someone's going to have a pair Someone's going to be, have been dealt a pair or a card that's the same as one of the two other cards, and that's a full house, which will defeat a straight or a flush. So you can get the best hand that other people can get also. Um, you can figure out the best hands that they can get and, see, um, and also figure out the likelihood that they have the best hands that they can get. So it's, it's game theory. It's one of those games to which game theory applies which is good, which is interesting, because you can tell best-case and worst-case scenarios and the odds of best-case and worst-case scenarios, but you're playing with people who can also do that, and they are, you are trying to figure out what cards they have based on the betting that they're doing. So if an ace is turned over and someone gets very excited and bets a lot once the ace is turned over, then in a very naive game of poker you would assume that they have an ace as one of, the, one of the two cards that you can't see. Otherwise, why would they be so excited about seeing an ace? In a less naive game of poker, you would think that they want you to think that they have an ace as one of the cards that you can't see, so that you will um, modify your bets or maybe even fold because you think they have now they have three aces or now they have four aces or something like that. And in a still less naive game of poker, you would think that this whole evening they've been very honest, a little bit like in Golden Balls, and they've bet when a card has been good for them and not bet when a card has been bad for them. And you've seen this going on for hours, and now they bet when they see an ace, and um, in fact they go all in. And you might think, well, that since they never bluff, they must have that ace, and you fold. And then it turns out that was the one time that evening they bluffed. So part of it is manipulating what other people think about you as you're playing. None of this is true in roulette. In roulette, it's pure chance. Poker is a game of skill, whereas roulette is a game of chance. 
and you can't beat the odds long long term in roulette. You can do it in one evening, you can do it in a couple of evenings. I had a great uncle who actually broke the bank once in uh, in a resort town in Yugoslavia, as it was then called, and the next night he did what happens in The Gambler, which is he lost it all and more the very next night. So everyone was really excited that my great uncle had broken the bank. You know, he was rich. He'd gone from not being rich to being rich. And then the next night, he went from being rich to being even less not rich than he was two days earlier. So I thought he was a jerk um, for losing all that money, which he could have left to me. He was old. Damn it. Um, like grandmother in The Gambler. So at any rate, those are the rules of, of poker and those are the rules of hold'em. And so the idea is that there is a psychology within the game as well as um, a best strategy. It's now becoming the case, I think it may actually even be the case, that computers have become better poker players than humans. Um, they're certainly the best computers are better than very good humans. I'm not sure they're better than the best humans, but they're better than, than very good human poker players. And that's scary to some people because there's a psychology to it, which means that, that if computers have skill in working out human psychology and in bluffing and in telling when humans are bluffing, if they can figure that out through patterns of behavior, then the kind of skill they're showing isn't the kind of skill that you get in Go or Chess or Checkers, which are games which are pure calculation, ultimately. They're pure calculation. But poker, it's like if a computer were best at the .7 game, that is, if we were playing with a computer and the computer always won the average, it was like the 15 of us plus a computer, and the computer always won, or usually won, um, the number that was 0.7 of the average of what everyone else put down, that would be kind of uncanny, right? Because there is no right answer to that one. There's a right answer for perfect reasoners. This is what we were talking about last week. There's a right answer for perfect reasoners, but there's no right answer if you're playing with imperfect reasoners. There's no right answer if you're playing with people who, even if they're all perfect reasoners, don't know that they're all perfect reasoners. Does that make sense to people? That, that you may be in a room playing the .7 game. So I don't have to say more about that, right? The, about the .7 game, because we played it, we know how it works. Okay, so if you're in a room playing the .7 game with strangers, you may be a perfect reasoner. You may have taken this class, and you may therefore know that the right answer, if everyone is thinking it through correctly, is to put down a one. You may know that. But if you don't know that everyone else in the room also knows that, you won't put down a one because you'll assume that they don't know that. And if even if you do know that everyone else in the room knows that, why might not you put down a one? Even if you do know that everyone else in the room, you know that everyone else in the room knows that in a room full of perfect reasoners, in a room where everyone knows this, they should put down a one, why might you not do it? Or would you? So you know that in a room of perfect reasoners, everyone agrees that that in a room of perfect reasoners, one is um, what a perfect reasoner, knowing that they're in a room of perfect reasoners, might want to put down. I'm trying to put this in a way that doesn't quite give it away. But you understand why one is the right answer. Does everyone understand why one is the right answer? Yeah. yeah. OK, good. Everyone understands. Everyone is. Sitting to my right and understands. Okay, good. Anyone not understand why one is the right answer? Cough. All right, good. So everyone understands why one is the right answer. Okay, why then, if you were playing in a room, so let's say you come into the game, and I want to give you an advantage. So I say to you, you know, these guys are all shills. 
they're all I mean they're not sh- they're not in in league with each other, but they all look schlumpy and they all are pretending that they don't that they don't think clearly and they're all pretending to be Columbo. Do you guys know who Columbo is? Thank God. No, not no proof. All right. Peter Falk, right? Yeah, Peter Falk. Exactly. So there was a time when that's all you would need to say. So everyone comes in and they look schlumpy and they look like they don't know what they're doing. But the manager comes to you because um, he owes you a favor, and the manager says, "Don't be fooled. They're all, every single person coming into this room is pretending that they don't know what's going on, but every single person in this room is a perfect reasoner. So now you know that everyone in the room is a perfect reasoner, um, and they're pretending not to be. Should you put down a one? Okay, so everyone thinks you should. Anyone think you shouldn't? Yeah. Well, I, if I know that this person tends to underestimate them, and then, you know, sort of this other person who's like, so I, or they know, well, I know because the, the, the manager told me that everyone's a perfect reasoner, but has he told every other perfect reasoner that everyone else is a perfect reasoner? Yeah, so they may not know that everyone else in the room is a perfect reasoner. So I'm a perfect reasoner, and in fact, everyone in the room is a perfect reasoner, but I'm the only person who knows that everyone in the room is a perfect reasoner. And if I'm the only person who knows that everyone else in the room is a perfect reasoner, those who don't know that everyone else in the room is a perfect reasoner are going to assume that some of them are going to put down 35 or 21 rather than putting down 1. And if some of them put down 35 or 21, then one is the wrong answer. So this, is, this, is, this models poker. This models you're trying to dope out how good the other players are, is are the other players um, perfect reasoners in poker? So do you see why you wouldn't put down one even if you knew that everyone was a perfect reasoner? What else would you need to know to put down one? You would need to know that everyone was a perfect reasoner. What else would you need to know? You would need to know that everyone in the room knew that everyone else in the room was a perfect reasoner. Does that make sense to people? That, that knowing that everyone is a perfect reasoner isn't enough to put down a one. You need to know that they know that everyone in the room is a perfect reasoner. Okay, is that enough to put down a one? If you know that everyone in the room knows that everyone in the room is a perfect reasoner, is that by itself enough to put down a one? This is the easy part. Yes. No, no. it's not. Do I trust you telling me that they're No, you trust, yeah. Okay. So the facts are the facts, which is you know that everyone is a perfect reasoner, and not only do you know it, but everyone in the room knows that everyone in the room is a perfect reasoner. But everyone else in the room may be in the position that we were just in on the previous round, which is they may know that everyone else in the room is a perfect reasoner, but they may not know that everyone in the room knows that everyone in the room knows that everyone in the room is a perfect reasoner. That is, they may still think everyone in the room is a perfect reasoner, but Sorry, I skipped a step, but it's, it's okay that I skipped a, skipped a step. They may, they may know that everyone in the room is a perfect reasoner, but they may not know that everyone in the room knows that. And so that everyone in the room, if they think the other people in the room don't know that everyone in the room is a perfect reasoner, they think some of the other people, they think the other people in the room will look for, will be fooled, will look, look to exploit the imperfect reasoning of some people in the room by going higher than one. And even if they know that everyone in the room is a perfect reasoner, they may think that some of those perfect reasoners, because they will, will be fooled, um, will go high. And then even if they're all told that everyone in the room is a perfect reasoner and knows that everyone in the room is a perfect reasoner and knows that everyone in the room knows that everyone in the room is a perfect reasoner, they may still think that not everyone knows what 
that, that, that they don't, I may still think they don't know what I now know, which is that they all know that everyone is a perfect reasoner and that everyone knows that everyone else is a perfect reasoner because they still think some people might bluff not knowing that everyone knows this fact. So it's really hard to converge into what's called, and this is actually the proper use of the term, common knowledge. So common knowledge is when you don't have a leg up on anyone else in what you know. Common knowledge is when there isn't any place where you can take a step back and think about what you know that other people don't know. Common <clears throat> knowledge is when you don't know anything that anyone else doesn't know. And when that happens, you get a kind of convergence. When that happens, then you have a situation where you can figure out the best move to make, given that you don't know it any better than anyone else. But it's really hard to get common knowledge in games like this, because you can always be taking a step back wondering whether you don't in fact know something that everyone else um, doesn't know, which is how much they know about how much you know, but they may not know everything that you know. I'm sorry to make this sound confusing, but the point is there's going to be a psychological element in situations like that. In games of skill, there's a psychological element. That's what's interesting about this. And the psychological element in a game of well, you know how Kasparov lost to Deep Blue? So you know Deep Blue, the first, the first um, chess tournament where a computer defeated the best human player in a whole match. So it wasn't just a game or two or even three or four games. But Deep Blue, I think this was in the late 90s, defeated um, Kasparov in um, a best of 11 series, something like that. And Kasparov at the time was the best player in the world and probably at the time the best player the world had ever seen. Magnus Carlsen may be better now, but Kasparov at the time was the best chess player in the world. Any of you play chess? This is so sad. You should watch more shitty TV and play more chess. It's a good thing. It's a good way to waste your life. All right, so Kasparov was the best player in the world at the time. And um, Deep Blue was the IBM program that was the best chess playing program in the world at the time. And so they held a match between Deep Blue and Kasparov. And Kasparov lost, and it was really um, an unhappy moment for him and for humanity. But one of the interesting things was that he played badly. And he blew several one games. That is, grandmasters watching the game thought he should have won, and then he made bad moves. And when they played the games out afterwards, it turned out he would have won, but he made bad moves. So why was he making bad moves? because he assumed the computer was actually a better player than it was. He assumed that when the computer made an unusual move, the computer was seeing something that he hadn't seen. And he kind of freaked out. And he, the moves were too hard to analyze because they were so unfamiliar, but he didn't go with his own intuition and instinct on what to do. If he'd been playing with a human, he would have won the game. But because he knew he was playing with a computer, he psyched himself out because the he gave the computer a kind of psychological edge, which is he assumed the computer was a better reasoner than it was. And so part of what's really interesting about any game of skill is what makes it a game is that you can bluff in a game of skill as well. And bluffing in a game of skill takes the form. This is this is what um, uh, what what street corner chess is about. It takes the form of making unusual moves, which make the other player think that you have something up your sleeve that they're not seeing. So even though it's a game of skill, there's also a way. There's also a psychological element to the game, and poker is a game of skill in that sense, which is that a skillful poker player will always win money from an unskillful poker player over the course of an evening, um, or certainly over the course of a lifetime. A skillful poker player will always win, 
However, there is part of that skill is doping out the psychology of the opponent and figuring out whether your opponent bluffs a lot, um, in which case you should put down 35 or even 45 if you're playing the .7 game, or whether your opponent never bluffs, in which case you should always believe your opponent, or if your opponent bluffs one or t once or twice an evening, in which case you should count how many times she's bluffed. Right? Is that how you play it, Andrea? Or is this going to yeah. getting too much in the weeds and away from the fun? The more skillful you are at poker, the less fun it is. That's, a, that's another problem with it. it. You just become a grim folder. You fold most hands if you're skillful in poker, which is um, totally not fun because you're mostly not playing. The more skillful you are, the more hands you fold. Do you agree with that? Yeah. Yeah. Sorry? Yeah, it's no fun to play, um, to be skillful. You want to play with duffers. All right, so what's, what's, what's freaky is when computers get that aspect, that psychological aspect of the game of skill in poker, when they're able to figure that out, when they keep winning the .7 game, no matter who they're playing with. Um, if they play an evening of .7s, they always win. And that is a little bit freaky. So that's what Whitehead's um, book's about. Yeah. But, you know, like the com because if the computer is networked, if it has access to all of your um, Facebook and what, it will, have, uh, it will be better than any human being in guessing what you will do if you have, like, so, uh, and that makes it look like it's not actually simulating human social intelligence at that point, it's doing something else. Uh, I mean, I, I'm not so, because, you know, that's the big fear, right, that they, the computers will know us better than we know ourselves, inevitably, because they have access to all our micro-behaviors that we might, uh, like, we don't, of course, we don't, just because we go crazy, we just all of them. And it's so, like, so that, that's just the case, so if the computer becomes this fountain of common knowledge, then we need to have legislation to stop it being used for it things like poker or any game, because, you know, then it's not, I don't, I'm not surprised by the fact that they would be better at that, given if they're, if they're allowed to be networked, if they know everything we do. Do you think that's still... Yeah, no, but I think it's, the, the point about computers playing poker is they do it without knowing who you are. Huh. That is, that if you play um, uh, 50 hands against a computer, uh, you start losing all the time. Or not all the time, but you start losing more than chance would have you lose, even if you're extremely skillful. Uh, the computer is more skillful than you. Knows when, can tell from what you're doing. There's, do people know what Turing tests are? Um, anyone? Yes. It's, um, isn't it whether you can, how to determine whether something is a computer or a person? Right. Okay, so in the 1950s, Alan Turing, or late 40s, Alan Turing, who's one of the two great founders of computer science, depending on how you count, who was, do people know who he, who he was? He was, there's a movie, a fictional movie about him called Enigma. So um, Turing was the person who broke the, essentially, if one person broke the German um, cipher during World War II, was Alan Turing. And he and the people at Bletchley Park were able to read German messages in a code that the Germans thought was unbreakable. And they could, uh, it is thought that Enigma was the single most important thing to win the war in Europe for the Allies. The single, the, sing, the one most important thing. And because they knew exactly when, when the Germans were going to going to attack where, where the U-boats were, which was a huge thing, and so on. So breaking Enigma was incredibly important. It was kept secret until the 1970s that Enigma had been broken. So 30 years after the war, it was still kept secret, and a lot of the women, and there were a whole lot of women um, decoders who helped break Enigma, um, weren't allowed to talk about what they'd done until they were in their 80s or 90s. Um, fairly recently one of the last great breakers of Enigma died and no, her family, her husband no one knew that she'd done this until um, like the 2000s um, she, they 
she said, oh, yes, I'm just a secretary. And uh, she would just then go in and um, figure out uh, where the Germans were planning to attack. And uh, she said one really interesting thing about it was she could tell who, which Germans were um, sending codes out because she could, she, she um, had a sense of their, the rhythm of their typing. So they would type out codes and she got a sense of the rhythm of their typing and knew who was who. And then she knew, once she knew who was who, she knew who would kind of like doodle on the Enigma machine before sending out a real message. And she said there was this one guy who would always have a cigarette before he started coding. She didn't know who he was, but he was a German coder, encoder. And he would have a cigarette. And while he was having a cigarette, he was bored, so he would just keep hitting the zero key on his Enigma machine. And she could tell from the rhythm that it was this guy who would just keep typing zero, 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 pointing a cigarette. And so she would get 200 zeros while he was smoking a cigarette. But those zeros would be encoded. So they would be like um, Q39ZZB, and she would then be able to see um, how zeros were being encoded that day, because the Enigma code changed every day, how the zeros were being coded that day, and she could break the code because of that. So this, this, this guy is smoking a cigarette and just, just tapping his finger, which should be a warning against tapping your fingers, um, just tapping his finger, and um, because of that, she could figure out where a German submarine was and um, destroy it and protect Allied shipping. So the, what Turing, who was then forced into suicide because he was gay and arrested for being gay and forced into hormone therapy, which destroyed his life, and eventually he committed suicide in the 1950s because the cops who arrested him had no idea that he basically won the war for England. Um, he was just a creepy gay academic to them. Um, came up with, made a claim that by the year 2000, ooh, science fiction future, the year 2000, that by the year 2000, it wouldn't be possible for someone who is communicating over a keyboard with an entity far away, when that entity was instructed to try to convince the communicator that it was human or that he or she was human, that by the year 2000, someone communicating with that entity, no matter what they were allowed to talk about or what they talked about, and no matter how good they were at understanding how computers worked, wouldn't be able to tell if they were communicating with a computer or with a human. So did you guys see SNL Saturday night? Did you see the parody of Us? Do you remember that? It's um, that they're, it, it seems to be a Discover ad where they're calling Discover, where you're supposed to get a real person if you call. And in fact, what they're, they end up, has anyone seen us? OK, well, they end up talking to us like zombies. Um, so um, that by the year 2000, you wouldn't be able to tell whether the entity you were talking to was a human or a computer. So, if, so the way a Turing test works, they do it at MIT every year. Um, the way a Turing test works is what you'll have is 50 computers and 50 human beings off-site. And you'll have 100 people who are communicating one-on-one -on -one with these 50 computers and 50 humans. And the human beings are trying to figure out if they're talking to a human or a computer. And the off-site computers are trying to convince the people they're talking to that they're humans. If trying makes sense when you're talking about a computer, are instructed are given algorithms meant to convince the people that they're communicating with that they're human. And the humans are trying to convince the people that they're communicating with that they're humans. OK, so does that make sense? So the idea is for human dignity, the humans want people to recognize that they're humans. And for artificial intelligence dignity, the computers are trying to convince the people that they're talking to that they're humans. And what Turing said was that by the year 2000, you wouldn't be able to tell better than chance whether you were communicating with a human or a computer. Um, so if you were not very expert on this, you would think, well, I'll give my entity 
um, a really hard multiplication problem, and if they give me the answer right away, ha, they're a computer. Um, so you give your entity, you know, what's 486 times 314, and then it gives you the wrong answer, and you think you're dealing with a human, but in fact it's instructed to give you the wrong answer. So that doesn't do it. So the question is, what do you talk about? What kinds of things would you say? What kinds of um, conversations would you have? Um, if you've seen Twitter bots, they work, they're, they're the original version of, well, um, bots were the original version of Turing machines. Do people know about, um, is it Elisa? I think it was Elisa that was the first um, bot. Um, so Elisa was a chat room bot, which is like pre-Twitter. And um, she was just really, really nasty to everyone she interacted with. And people just hated her, and they get into these huge flame wars with her. And um, she was a bot, but no one knew it. And so that was the first example of a Turing test, was this, this kind of really nasty um, troll was, in fact, a bot. And whatever you said, she would, she would sneer at you. Are you talking about the one that was made by, like, Microsoft? Um, I think this, it may be Microsoft, yeah. Um, it was originally pre-Microsoft, but then I think Microsoft took it over. Like an easy kind of thing, when you go and you, like obviously like the whole gimmick of it is that it's a robot and you're talking to a robot. Well, this was people did not know they were talking okay. to robots. So it's just like a chat room? Yeah, it was a chat, there would be a chat room and she would go into chat rooms. A little bit like her, like the movie Her. So she would go into chat rooms. And um, she would immediately get into fights with everyone in the chat room. And everyone tried to reason with her. And the more you tried to reason with her, the more vicious she got. Until someone came up with another bot, which was a psychologist bot, who was always... Sorry? Do you know yeah, that? no, that's not the one I was thinking of. I was thinking of this one called Tay. That got turned racist by the internet. Oh, yeah, that was, reason. That was, um, that was recent. Yeah. Yeah, there was a Twitter bot that um, was basically... Um, amplifying right-wing memes, and um, it was basically if, if there was a popular tweet, this bot would pick up on what was popular about the tweet and say similar things, and it just got amazingly racist amazingly fast, and they had to get rid of it like within three days um, because it just got to be so awful, which tells you something about Twitter. Um, because all it was was channeling popular tweets. So, no, this is a much older bot. Yeah, it, I think you're talking about one that was made, wasn't it made like in the 80s or something yeah, like that? Yes, yeah, yes, yeah. They have a version of it, or used to, I think in, something like Google, like, I think it was like Google Earth or something. They had one like, which one's the one that goes into space? Yeah, Google Earth. No, no, there's another one that goes to like planets. Like you can travel to different planets or something. Oh, like I don't know, Second Life? No, 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 it's like a Google thing. All right. Um, but anyways, they have, like, on the face on Mars, they have, like, you can, like, go and chat to the, to the robot. To the, that, that oh, no, I don't know about this. Yeah. Oh, that sounds like a good time waster. Good. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, I had a lot of fun middle school doing that. All right. Middle school. Middle school. Good. So I could have fun now. Um, all right. So the Turing test is basically the absolute major league version of this. So you can talk about um, movies that you've just seen and things that you notice about the movie, and it'll have deep insights into it. And you can talk about books that you're reading, and you can talk about um, what the feel of um, cellophane is when your fingers are cold, and it'll say, yeah, it's just like that. Or the way Twinkies leave a kind of film on your fingers and um, how weird that is. And it's just going to, like, it'll be like a friend who um, is really completely human and um, deep and fun. And so Turing thought this would happen by the year 2000, and it hasn't happened yet. The reason I bring it up is that there's such a thing called a reverse Turing test, which is what we're talking about here, essentially. A reverse Turing test is the 50 or the 100 entities off-site are trying to convince a hundred computers on site that they're computers. So you have um, computers are trying to figure out if they're dealing with a computer or a human being. And the computers are trying to convince the computers that they're computers. And the humans are trying to convince the computers that they're computers. 
Now, you can't cheat by giving very, very difficult math um, uh, calculations. That's, that's out of bounds. So the way reverse Turing tests work is you ask human beings and computers just to give a string of random ones and zeros up to 200 random ones and zeros. So it's like flipping a coin 200 times. That is, all you're doing is sitting at your computer and you're supposed to type one zero randomly until you have 200 digits. Um, so you might have one one zero zero one zero one 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 zero 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 something like that. Computers can almost invariably tell when they're dealing with a human. If they're dealing with a naive human, they can tell after about 20. Um, for sure that they're dealing with a human. But even if they're dealing with a math professor whose um, who's, who's work is entirely in probability, the computers can tell after about 200 digits that they're dealing with a human being and not a computer. Why do you think that is? Sorry? <laughs> You're excited about this? It's because humans can't do things randomly. No matter how hard we try, we can't. So what humans tend to do is, OK, give me someone. Give me a random string of ones and zeros. Um, no. How many? 10. Yeah, you're totally human. Yeah. You're totally human. Yay. <laughs> totally human. Um, someone else. Proof. Zero, one, one, zero, one, one, I almost said three, zero, one. <laughs> okay. Someone else. Am I human? Yeah, you are. You're totally human. Because that's what the Turing test always gave me anxiety. Would I pass it? Is there any data? <laughs> Would you pass it? <laughs> yes. So if you're dealing with, if you ever do a Turing test, if you're one of the 100 people that MIT flags to do it, if you're talking to an entity that says it's anxious, whether you will think it's human or not, it's probably not human. Okay, one more. One zero zero string. Someone? Rahan? You might be a computer. <coughs> Humans alternate ones and zeros too frequently. That is, if you do it 200 times, then there should be a time where you have seven in a row of something, or even eight in a row of something, if you're doing it 200 <laughs> times. Humans just can't do it. If you're trying to show that you're random, you will never say, if you're really trying to win, and you're trying to show that you're random, you'll never say one, 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 one. Um, but you should. Some point in there, you should. Because the odds that you'll get six ones in a row are 1 in 32. The odds that you'll get 7 are 1 in 64. The odds that you'll get 8 are 1 in 128. And the odds that you'll get 9 are 1 in 256. So having nine ones in a row, that wouldn't be a surprise to a computer if you do it 200 times. But humans just can't do it. Unless they're playing roulette in Roulettenburg in the 19th century. So that's what we'll talk about tomorrow. Or not tomorrow, Wednesday. OK. See you then. Yes, yeah, no, we're going to, it's a fantastic article. Did everyone read it? Money is McGuffin? Okay, quiz on Money is McGuffin on Wednesday. April Fool's. <laughs> 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 Wrong. <laughs> nice try, though. <laughs>